Good evening, everyone. So much of Jesus' teaching was counter-cultural. It still is. Love your enemies. Go the second mile. Turn the other cheek. Last shall be first, and the first will be last. You know, people tend to be self-centered. Even now, our society looks out for number one. But Jesus confronted that mindset head-on and challenges his followers to place others above ourselves. In Proverbs 6.18, it says, Pride goes before a fall, and a haughty spirit before destruction. So this is not necessarily a new concept of being humble, but it's something Jesus reminded his followers all throughout his ministry. If I may ask, could we turn on that projector in the rear? That'll help me to see where we are as well. If we fail in this, checking our pride of not being humble, it can be a death toll for the church and cause so much damage. So what I want to do is study what Jesus says about pride, about humility, and how we are to treat one another. Because in humility, we reflect that we are His and how we receive other people. And they know that we belong to Him. We make them feel invited and, and warm and, and receptive. And it's so important. In James 4.10, James says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. And it doesn't happen automatically. We tend to be competitive. Sometimes we like to jockey for position. Nobody else will toot our horn. We're not above tooting our own horn, if need be. Shortly after Theodore Roosevelt died, one of his children said this, Father always wanted to be the bride of every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. The center of attention can be intoxicating. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We're going to look at this text today and see how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees, a group that was not particularly known for their humility. I think we can learn some lessons from their negative example of how not to be and maybe understand this characteristic a little better. With humility, you take the focus off of yourself and you place it on others. And in Luke 14, these opening verses, I want us to see three expectations I think that will help us personally, but also help keep our church moving and, and growing and be a place where the humble are exalted. Expectation number one, be flexible. Be flexible. In other words, be open. Be willing to change. Flexibility is a sign of humility. Stubborn pride refuses to change while flexibility shows a willingness to swallow your pride. To forget about what you want and think about what's best for others, what's best for the kingdom. Rigidness communicates I'm comfortable, I'm secure, I like it the way it is. People who are rigid don't want to get out of their comfort zone. But a humble person is willing to sacrifice that for the good of others and even for the long run for themselves. Because part of being humble and being flexible means you're willing to grow. An example of this is the Pharisees. They thought they had all the answers. They, th they thought they had it all figured out. They didn't want anything to change, especially in this context with what they, how they interpreted the Sabbath day. Look at Luke 14. It opens in verse 1, 1 and 2. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. What is dropsy? 
Dropsy is an ancient word, an old term that meant swelling in the soft uh, tissues of the body due to an excess of water. We don't use that term anymore. Today, we would be more descriptive with it. We would call it an edema and maybe even give the cause, maybe because of uh, congenital heart failure. But in that day and time, they just knew it was dropsy. So this man who's suffering is right there. Look in verse 3 and following. Jesus asked the Pharisee and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, would you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Now, the context of this chapter, this is not a relaxing dinner among friends. Jesus knew very well he was being carefully watched, scrutinized by these legalists who were trying to trap him, to catch him being wrong. They were eager to find that. And it's important for us to understand the Pharisees' teaching in these traditions said that it was forbidden to heal on the Sabbath day. That's what they believed. That's what they taught. Not necessarily what was actually written in the law of Moses, but that was their interpretation. You don't heal on the Sabbath. You have all these other days to heal, but not on the Sabbath. Warren Wiersbe goes so far as to say that they set a trap. That the reason this man with dropsy was there, they placed him there. Only reason he was invited, because they knew. If Jesus came into this situation, he saw this man hurting, Jesus could not not do something, even on the Sabbath day. But when he asked them, is it lawful, is it legal to heal on the Sabbath? They clam up. They don't say a word. They refuse to respond to the question. They were too arrogant, too rigid to admit that their attitudes might be incorrect. It takes humility to be flexible. And the longer we exist as a church, we know that we're going to have traditions, and traditions can be a good thing. They can be a wonderful thing, but we can also be tempted to hide behind our traditions, to be comfortable in our traditions, and it can produce a rigidness among us. Don't mess with those. I think West Seventh, for the most part, has done a great job of being flexible and even being innovative of being welcome to change. I've mentioned this before, and you might remember, West 7th is one of the first congregations in Tennessee to install air conditioning. Praise the Lord. Aren't we glad? Uh, one of the first to have a youth minister. One of the first to have a church van. One of the first to have individual cups for communion. And none of those were without some serious conversations that happened. Our elders are good to accept an idea, think about it, not be quick to jump, but to be open. And to be flexible. Other traditions change too. Do we clap after baptisms? What about what we wear when we gather? Is it okay for a church to have a gym? Or a kitchen? Or two kitchens? Or three kitchens? What about having a Sunday night worship and then others meeting in homes? What about making a huge hole in the back wall and projecting this image? Now, all these things are modifying our methodology, but our message stays the same. 
Because we know we can't reach an ever-changing culture if we don't change some of our methods. So let's not major in minors. Let's keep Christ the focus. I love the quote that says, Death comes when memories of the past supersede our vision for the future. John Maxwell tells of a, uh, an experiment that some college professors conducted. Four monkeys were placed in a room. Have you heard about this? Four monkeys were placed in the room. In the center of the room was a pole. At the top of the pole was a bunch of bananas. And so, of course, as soon as they put the monkeys in there and closed the door, one of the monkeys climbed up the pole and went after and grabbed the banana. But just as he grabbed the banana, it was doused with water, so much so it knocked him off the pole back down to the ground. He didn't know what hit him. So another monkey got up and climbed the pole, and as soon as he grabbed the bananas, same thing happened. All of them took a time, took a turn, climbing up the pole. Each of them got doused with water. They didn't know what to think about it, so they stopped. Nobody climbed. Nobody went after the banana. But then, after giving up, they would add a new monkey. Take one out, put another one in. And that new monkey would go over and start to climb. But they didn't have to douse them with water. The other monkeys grabbed them and wouldn't let them climb the pole. And then as the experiment continued in time, that room was filled with monkeys. None of the original, all new. And they all grabbed each other and wouldn't let the others. But none of them knew why. But they refused to climb the pole. There are a lot of times in churches, families, for the death toll is sounded by the phrase, we've never done it like this before. And they're church members and sometimes church leaders who are afraid to climb the pole. Try something new in lives and we don't even know why. I'm challenged, always challenged by what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.22. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. The main goal is not... To have it our own way, the main goal is to do things that are most beneficial for the kingdom, of advancing the call. So be flexible. Well, number two in our text, I want us to see be humble. Be humble. Peter speaks of the church in 1 Peter 5, 5, and he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Something like you put on, you make the choice, you clothe yourself with, with humility. And then he quotes from Proverbs, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Look what happens in the setting in Luke 14, beginning in verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked their places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you might have been invited. If so, the host who has invited both of you will come and say, Give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What we see here, the Pharisees didn't want to humble themselves. That's why he told them this parable. Trying to get them to understand. In Israel, in that culture, the meal played a very important role in family. And any kind of gathering. And where you sat mattered. It was a, a pecking order. A matter of prominence. It helped to add to their status. So Jesus attacks their pride head on by telling them this story. And their arrogance. That their seat selection is the issue. Or actually it's a symptom of reflecting the issue. And he digs deeper 
And he goes toward their hearts. He said those Pharisees you know, were bad, but the disciples we know were just like them. And we are too. Think about it. Remember Mark 10, James and John says, Lord, when you come in your kingdom, we want to sit on your right hand and your left. Same thing, positioning. They're jockey. And when the other ten heard it, they were indignant, the Bible says. Angry. I wonder, often wonder, maybe you do too, if they're angry because they didn't get to ask first. They're still jockeying for a position. But even today, Christians, you and I, don't always want to humble ourselves all the time, do we? Maybe in a church setting is easier, but what about at work, at school, at home? When your department at work goes out to eat with the boss, are you watching as you go in and everybody's picking their seat and you want to sit at the fun table or the fun end of the table or maybe by the boss who you have his ear? Are you thinking about that new hire? Still is not sure which way is up? And maybe sit by them? A couple years ago, I attended a leadership conference. I always like to go to a place where people are excelling and doing well. And usually that's a church that's large. And this was a huge church. Started small, grew well over a thousand. And he told this story that one time there was a guy who came to like a seminar like that and stayed for the weekend. He was there on Sunday. And he came in early and he grabbed a seat. And not very long afterwards, this lady came up and just stood in the aisle and stared at him. And he said, may I help you? And she said, you're in my seat. I always sit there. Huge church. There's this guy from the small church there to learn how to grow your church. And, and here this happens. And so he got up kind of embarrassed. And he went and told the preacher about it. And the preacher said, oh man, that's like a, a dagger in the heart to any preacher. He said, I am so sorry. And he says, no. He said, I kind of liked it. But I realized that our small church is more like your large church than I realized. <laughs> The preacher said this, though, as we thought about that story. He felt good, but I didn't. Because evidently, although that woman had sat through many services and many sermons, the main message hadn't come through. Her seat selection took precedence over what she heard. When you come to church, I want to encourage you, check your ego at the door. Don't bring it in at all. When you get ready to leave, when you go to work tomorrow, go back to school tomorrow, when you go home, check your ego again. Because I think the only way people are going to see Jesus in us is that humble spirit. That's when we stand out. That's when we're different. In Greek, the word humble literally means to make low. Make yourself low is what it's saying in the original word. Matthew 18, 14, Jesus says, humble yourselves uh, therefore, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That childlike humility is a requirement of service for God's people. One of my favorite authors, John Ortberg, said this kind of a tongue-in-cheek. I'd like to be humble, but what if nobody notices? I think we can relate to that. And the Christian life is filled with tests to see how we do, to see how serious we are about being humble. The Bible says repent and be baptized. And our pride says, I don't want to get wet. Do I have to be immersed? Is that a requirement? The Bible tells us to give generously and joyfully. Oh, they're talking about money again. But a humble spirit says, you know, God supplied all my needs. And I'm glad to worship Him with this offering. The Bible says, wives, be submissive to your husbands. 
Pride says, no man is going to tell me what to do. But a humble spirit says, Lord, let me walk in your way and to have your spirit. Even if my instincts fight that urge. The Bible says, husband, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And we get defensive in our pride and say, I'm not romantic. That's not me. But a humble spirit will pray, Lord, help me to demonstrate to my wife so that she knows I love her more than anything. So that whatever I do and say will communicate that she is cherished and loved, needed, and appreciated. So be flexible. Be humble. And then number three, be inclusive. Be inclusive. Now, I almost hesitated to use that word because talk about inclusive and all kinds of things can go through our minds. Kind of a catch-all. We include anybody regardless. Well, I want to think of that word the way Jesus uses that word. Don't think anything goes. Think anyone is welcome. That's what I mean by inclusive. When you think about inclusive, think of the way Christ talks about it. He's encouraging us to, to look at people who may look different than us. They may think differently than we do. In this passage, Jesus gives a much more detailed view of how to include others. He begins to list some people to think about, to consider including in your world that you wouldn't normally, usually even consider. Look at verse 12. Then Jesus said to the host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. See, our nature, just our default, we tend to be exclusive. Not inclusive. I'll, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And Jesus is challenging that way of thinking. Big deal. We're not special. Everybody does that. You show love and kindness to the people who can show you love and kindness. But all about showing love and kindness to those who can't necessarily return that favor. See, Christ's plan is for the people who are at the top of our invitation list, probably are not the people that we need to be spending our time with constantly. That in some point in our growing in the Lord, we're not thinking about me, about self, who I want to sit by, who I want to be at the dinner table with. We're thinking about the one who's new, the one who doesn't have a friend, the one who needs somebody to talk with, the one who's struggling. And we reach out to them we need to put some people who would be at the bottom of our list at the top. So we're going to break at work. You always talk with the same people. Maybe the same like-minded faith. People who share the same worldview. Dare I say the same political view. Or do you try to build bridges to those who may be different? When you're at your child's game and you're on the sideline, in the stands, do you always sit by the same people? Or do you think, who could I sit by that's new or even different? When you're with your neighbors, do you spend time with those who know you well and know what you believe and you're content with that? Or do you reach out a bit and try to build a bridge? See, even people who are turned off by organized religion, they're humans. And they're hungry for relationships. 
Can you imagine what you and I could accomplish for the Lord if we were to build a bridge to those people? Maybe it's a person who's much more wealthy than you. Maybe it's somebody who's much poorer than you. Maybe it's a person of a different race. Maybe it's somebody from a different age bracket. We tend to go to those who are just like us. But what if instead we put our selfishness aside and we look for those who are different? What if it's somebody with a physical or emotional disability or a challenge? Can we be like Jesus and be the one to reach out to them? Back in 1937, Lou Gehrig was an outstanding first baseman for the New York Yankees. And he received a request, an invitation. He was asked to go to the Children's Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. So his next time there, when the team was playing the White Sox, he went to visit a 10-year-old boy named Tim. Tim had polio. Tim was a huge fan of Lou's. But Tim did not think that he was going to be able to do the therapy or if he did the therapy it wouldn't really help him to walk and he just had this defeatist attitude and so they asked Lou to come and visit with him to encourage him to do the therapy so Lou Gehrig when he went to Chicago he went to the hospital and if you've ever been to a children's hospital you know even just to go to a children's hospital can be a challenge but he went to the hospital he met Tim and he said, I want you to get well. I want you to learn to walk again. And Tim said this, Lou, if you hit a home run for me today, I will. Talk about pressure. Lou Gehrig said, I left there apprehensive and nervous, thinking I probably won't be able to deliver on this boy's request. Lou Gehrig didn't get a home run. He got two. Two years later, when Lou Gehrig was dying, of that dreaded muscular disease that to this day bears his name. July 4th, 1939. It was Lou Gehrig Day in the stadium. Thousands and thousands of fans were there. Not even all of them could get in. They were out in the street. They were there celebrating him. The governor, the mayor, all these celebrities who were there to meet him, to encourage him to pay their respects. He was a hero to everyone. But before they gave him the microphone to speak, Tim came walking out of the dugout. Now he's 12 years old, dropped his crutches, and he walked to home plate, and he hugged Lou Gehrig around the waist. That was the setting when Lou Gehrig said those infamous words, today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. You see what happens when you and I take the focus off of ourselves, and we do for somebody else, somebody who's not like us, somebody of a different age, a different race, somebody who's going through a struggle, Somebody who you wouldn't otherwise choose to spend time with. Will you humble yourself and you become inclusive? It's amazing how the Lord blesses that humble spirit. You're the one who walks away blessed. Not the person you think you're doing a favor to or you're being kind to. You're the one whose cup is filled. And God fills that cup. Isn't that what Jesus did for us. He left the comfort of heaven 
took the form of man and came to earth. And He came for one purpose. To be inclusive. To say it's for anybody. It's for everybody. Not anything goes. But anyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome. He came with the purpose of forgiving people so that they could be free. And so that we could enjoy that victory. I know it's so easy to believe Satan's lie and think, you know, I think God is mad at me for all that I've done. How inconsistent I've been. How full of myself I have been. And yes, we have. We are inconsistent and we can be full of ourselves. And yes, he is displeased with your sin. Just as he's displeased with everyone's sin. But he offers to you a promise today. He'll accept you just the way you are. And then discipleship is when you continue to change as he conforms you into the image of his son. That is the good news of the gospel. The part of that obedience begins with this very concept we're talking about. You humble yourself. You swallow your pride. Lord, I can't save myself. There's no way I can make it all right. And God says, I know. That's why He went first. If you repent of your sins, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you're baptized into His name, letting Him make you a new creation, you are free, you are washed, you are one with Him. Our invitation song is to encourage you to do just that. Or if we can pray for you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing?